Well, good morning again. My name is BJ. It's great to be here with you. And a special welcome to those of you who are online. We see you in the chat every week. We're so glad that you stay connected with what God is doing here at Christ Church. You are an important part of our church family, and we know you're there. Uh, so it is, uh, I am up here this morning uh, because Pastor Van is out of town. Uh, you may uh, know, he shared last week, his father passed away a few weeks ago. So he and Carrie are in North Carolina um, at the memorial service this weekend. So we want to lift them up in prayer and pray that the God of comfort would be with them as they grieve as a family in this time. Um, But because he's not here, I also have the opportunity to welcome uh, a face that may be familiar if you've been connected with Christ Church for more than a few years. Uh, Lyle Mook is the former senior pastor of this church. He was here for about 20 years before he retired I think retired is the right word, Uh, a few, probably four years ago, three, four years ago. Um, And we get to hear him share this morning. Uh, So would you welcome him this morning? And let me pray for him. God, we thank you for Lyle. We thank you for the ministry that you have called him to, the ministry that you have blessed him, and the fruit that we have seen um, even today through the ministry that he was faithful to here for a number of years. We thank you that he is continuing to carry your gospel wherever he goes. And we pray this morning for your word to come clearly through him. Lord, would you meet each one of us where we are and speak to our hearts directly. Call us, shape us, and make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, BJ. I was, I was uh, sitting listening to the music, and uh, those who may look at this later, we sang a song about revival. And uh, having worked for many, many years now in the pandemic world, in the hospital situation, it's interesting how spiritually over the centuries, back at the Psalms and Ezekiel and on through church history, this word revival has been used as a spiritual um, you know, comeback, as it were, a spiritual energizing of our lives. But the, what's the word revive literally mean? It, it's, it's a breathing word, isn't it? It's the idea of if you're revived, that's not just a pleasant alternative. That's life and death. And, uh, and so that's part of what we're talking about when we talk about revival. This series on a sense of direction I would submit to you that in our current cultural moment, having a clear sense of direction uh, is not usually very easy, but it is vitally, vitally important. We're going to switch. I wish we had BJ 25 years ago because he's done some wonderful things here with this, but the gremlins are still here. You know, the, the, uh, I said it was my magnetic personality, but I don't think so. Since we've come back uh, to Christ Church more frequently, <clears throat> I thought it'd be fun to actually picture what it would be like coming for the first time. If I didn't know anybody here, uh, if I'd never been to the church, how would I approach looking into this church and, and who you are? Well, I might have a friend who comes here. That's usually how people end up at a church community, right? Is someone's invitation, someone who know, you know. You've seen something in their lives. You've seen the effects of what they're doing. Others, uh, other times you might just drive by a church and you say, oh, that's a, that's a really beautiful church building. 
Uh, and I see Christ Church, and it says Compassionate Christian Community. That's, that seems really cool. And so you go on the website, and you read about Compassionate Christian Community. Matter of fact, I would find that Christ Church seems to talk a lot about Compassionate Christian Community. I would venture to say some of you get, have times where you get tired of hearing Compassionate Christian Community, which is understandable. Uh, that's not meant to just be a slogan to memorize. And so when it becomes sort of rote or, or a little less filled with excitement for you, usually it means that you need to engage a little bit further, a little deeper. As a matter of fact, Compassion to Christian Community here at Christ Church is really simply a, a shortcut or it's a short summary of a larger statement, isn't it? So if I were to go on the website, uh, maybe you haven't done this yourself for a while, but if you go to where it says our vision and our values, there'd be a longer statement. And here's the first sentence of, uh, of the, the statement of vision. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Is that a good place to start right now these days? Jesus is the hope of the world. Not to mention the fact that he is the world's rightful king. Not to mention that he is the Lord of the universe. Okay, So if you start there, that means everything is different now. And so the statement goes on. Jesus is the hope of the world, therefore. Therefore, we exist to do what? Our reason for being has several components. It says we exist to, to multiply compassionate Christian community. And how do we do that? Not just That's not an end in itself. It's in order that we would form disciples, that, that people are being drawn to be followers of Jesus Christ. So whether you're, you're here or, or listening in, just investigating and searching, and you realize you need to connect some dots, that there's something deep in your spiritual needs that aren't being met, or whether you become a follower of Christ, you're, you're going to be always growing. And guess what? We are always going to be works in progress. Whether you are 17 or 77, we're all works in progress, aren't we? So, and then, then it ends by saying that forming of disciples is where we then join God in his work to bring transformation and restoring and renewing of his world that God so deeply, deeply loves. So when Van, Pastor Van asked me if I would uh, speak specifically into this compassion part uh, of this vision, I uh, thought for a couple seconds and said, absolutely, I'd love, love to do that. Because this isn't just something that I think about or I've studied or, or that it's in my head. This is actually God's cutting edge in my life as I work in the chaplaincy field but also just, just seeking to become a person who engages more with the needs of people. So this morning, I would like us to take a closer look at two familiar passages of Scripture, familiar to many of you, I'm sure. One is Moses and the burning bush, and the other is Jesus' incredible parable of the Good Samaritan. And within those two portions of Scripture, of sacred Scripture, I'd like you to go home with an embedded phrase, a simple two-word phrase 
that I hope will take on new meaning. The phrase is simply turning aside. Turning aside. All right? So let's, uh, let's go to the first one. The burning bush. You've heard of the burning bush? Some of you? Okay. Even if not in scripture, it's sort of an iconic symbol. The burning bush. So here's a picture. This is an icon from a place called St. Catherine's Monastery in the middle of the Sinai Desert of Egypt. This is where Moses actually met with God, went up on the mountain, received the Ten Commandments. And on that site, there is a monastery that's been there since the early Christian era. Still has a group of monks there, but more than that, it's also a place that archives some of the most early, the earliest uh, portions of manuscripts of sacred scripture. It also has some very beautiful icons. So this is the icon of the, of the burning bush. This comes from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And uh, the context is in chapter 2 of Exodus. Here's how chapter 2 ends. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned. Why did they groan? What's going on with the people of Israel in Egypt? When you think of Israel in Egypt, what else do you think about? Slavery. And then, joyfully, Exodus. Okay, major, major theme, right? But listen to what it says. Listen to the words of Scripture here. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And then the last three words, it says, and God knew. Beautiful. God heard. He saw. He remembered. He knew. So God turns aside, as it were, to the cry and the groaning of his people. This word groaning is so unique. Are you hearing any groaning going on these days? It's like we have a world of groans. Groaning is a unique word. It appears dozens of times in the Bible. It's the idea of suffering beyond words, unspeakable, malaise. The French have a word, malheur. It's like a sense of affliction. There's several times when I have preached just on the word groan. The first time was the Sunday after 9-11. What, what do you talk about? What what? is going on in our hearts and minds and psyche as a culture. And the word groan came. The other time I preached on groaning was at the tragic death of Sarah Allen at age 21 in a car accident. What do you say? We groan. God hears our groans. And sometimes that's all we can do, and God takes over from there. So groaning. The people of Israel are groaning, and God chooses to use this man, Moses, the reluctant hero of the book of Exodus. Okay? Here's what it says. 
So Moses is keeping his flock, and, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Remember that? Okay, we'll stop there, because we're not going to unpack the whole story and what happens afterwards, except that, obviously, Moses, uh, though he was available, here I am, he then spent the next uh, period of time trying to convince God that he was not the man uh, that should go to <laughs> announce to Pharaoh to let my people go. Nevertheless, uh, he was available. There's a real, there's sort of a similarity here to something we just went through in Advent and, East, and uh, Christmas. Remember the angel? Angels have a way of getting our attention, don't they, right? Well, the Christmas story is crawling with angels. And, and so when, when the angel comes to Mary, remember what happens? She's appropriately frightened. But then, what's her response? Here I am, the servant of the Lord. It's like, at your service. Let it be to me as you have said. There's a similarity there. As a matter of fact, in the early church, they actually saw Mary. Mary was sometimes associated with the burning bush. So God is doing something totally unique and wonderful in coming to be intimately connected to his people who are groaning. All right? Now, it's interesting. When, when Moses sees this burning bush, again, it's like, this is unique. There's a bush, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Moses could have said, this freaks me out. I'm out of here and, you know, run away. But the words that are used here in Scripture is, and, and I like the, the, the English Standard and RSV and other more sort of word-for-word -word kinds of translations because it captures the original symmetry here. And, and basically Moses says, it says, Moses turned aside to see. He needed to be, we talk a lot about not being distracted. We're too distracted, right? Well, sometimes when we need to be distracted, perhaps from our distractions, to pay attention to something else that's right there in front of us. So Moses turned aside to see. And then the, the next phrase says, and when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see... <laughs> Then he revealed himself, right? So this language of turning aside has just really captured me over the, over the years as I've looked at this and other places. Uh, it's the idea of giving my attention. It's attending to God. It's attending to his voice. It's attending to people. There's a sense of turning aside that is a precursor to everything else in terms of encounter with God and encounter with people. So when, when the Lord turned aside to see the affliction of his people, and then Moses turns aside to see and gives his attention, here I am, it speaks of this encounter that God 
is not far away, like the gods of the nations saw God, but this God has actually come to be in our midst. He's come to rescue us. So what does that have to do with compassion? Let's go on to the next passage of Scripture. The Good Samaritan. Probably between this and the prodigal son, two of the most familiar uh, parables. And, uh, and people may know it, but there's a, there's a thing about having something be familiar. And I, I remember early on, someone said to me, you should meditate and contemplate more frequently the most familiar passages of Scripture. There's a reason why these are familiar. There's a reason why the 23rd Psalm is the 23rd Psalm, and it's said so frequently. The problem is, sometimes when it's familiar, we, we stop going deeper. We stop contemplating it. We don't let God speak to us in a fresh way. So with sort of fresh eyes, uh, let's, let's look again at the Good Samaritan. This is a picture, a picture of, uh, that captures a moment in the Good Samaritan story. Vincent van Gogh, near the end of his life. He actually took a painting from someone else, a colleague of his, Delacroix, uh, who had painted a different color, but it was just, he took that image with all the pathos of putting the, the, the sick person on his animal and so on. And van Gogh inverted it and then added his own color and brush strokes that made it so unique to him. All right? But this was also near Van Gogh's tragic end of his life. All right? So, here's what happens in uh, the Good Samaritan. As often happens, there were some religious leaders who wanted to trick Jesus to catch him, you know, in a gotcha moment. And uh, so, this particular lawyer, and that doesn't mean a judicial person, it means a, a Jewish expert in the law, Jewish law, stands up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? So he starts where the man is in the Jewish law. His answer is actually what Jesus later uses as a summary, the great commandment, the summarizing of the whole heartbeat of God in the law of God. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But desiring, he, he the, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This story is not just about being compassionate and reaching out to someone in need, although it is that. The main point of this story that Jesus is going to tell has to do with challenging this young expert in the law about how he views people and how he himself has justified the idea of having some people who are outside and some who are inside that you can marginalize people, you can dehumanize people, you can ignore people. And therefore, the idea of loving them doesn't even come into the picture, does it? So here's the story. So Jesus says these words. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
he fell among robbers who stripped him. This is Luke 10, by the way, if you're wondering where I'm at. Um, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, this is a Jewish priest from the temple, was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why did he do that? It's like you're going down the road and there's someone in the ditch on your right and you decide to cross on the other side of the road and keep going. Well, scholars would tell us that one of the things is if, if the person who was a victim was half dead, he might look like he was fully dead, and therefore the priest had these interpretations of law that would say you can't touch a dead body, it will make you unclean. Jesus had some pretty colorful words about that interpretation, but nevertheless, that's, that's what's happening in the story. So then along comes a second person, uh, and this is a Levite uh, who served in the temple. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When the Samaritan saw him, it says he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he pulls out two coins, gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. And whatever you, more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. He's thinking about longer term. Which of these three, Jesus says to the lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And being such a wise, astute person, the young man said, um, the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus said, so yeah, you go. You go, man. You go and do likewise. Now, of course, some of you probably know What's the issue here with a Samaritan? Why in the story did Jesus decide to take a Samaritan as the hero of the story or the one who shows compassion? Why couldn't it be just, you know, some, some other part of Israel or even, even uh, you know, a Gentile? No, he chose the Samaritan. Why? Because Samaritans, as you may know, were considered not only half-breeds, half-Jewish, but, but heretics. So if anybody deserved to be marginalized and, you know, not liked, it would be Samaritans. It wasn't that the Jews didn't like Samaritans. They despised Samaritans. And so that's, that's why you'd go, you'd go north and you'd actually go around the area of Samaria, just so you wouldn't have to meet them. That's why the disciples were, were a little confused when they see Jesus going through Samaria, stopping at a well and talking to a woman of Samaria at the well. Okay, so... Jesus is making a strong point here. It's the Samaritan. It's the one who doesn't have all of his, his teaching and doctrine right in his head. He doesn't know all the 630 commandments like you do. But what's he doing? He is actually reflecting the heart of God. He is the one who shows compassion. It's interesting, uh, someone has said this when it comes to this idea of love your neighbor as yourself. 
we don't have neighbors. We don't just have neighbors. To be a neighbor in the biblical sense is to make ourselves a neighbor. To make ourselves a neighbor. And to do that, you've got to turn aside. You've got to see. You know, this, this phrase, turn aside to see this man on the road. The other two, the priest and the Levite, saw him with their physical eyes. But there's a deeper sense of seeing. Have you ever felt in your own life like you were invisible? Maybe you're going through a deep time of affliction or distress, and it's like, I don't think anybody sees me. Sometimes you hear people with disabilities talk this way. It's like I'm invisible to people. Or, or, or like I'm not really, really one of them. And so that idea of turning aside to see is, is just an incredible starting point. Compassion and mercy are almost synonymous. You see them used in this stretch here. It says in, in the Good Samaritan parable, it says the Samaritan had compassion on him. And then when he asked the, the lawyer who was the one who was a neighbor, he says the one who had mercy. So mercy and compassion are seen in similar veins here. Uh, kindness. What is mercy and compassion? It's kindness and goodwill joined with a desire to help, to take action. He showed mercy. He showed compassion. So the word compassion in our English translations isn't used that much in the letters of, of the Bible as much as it is in the Gospels, and it's usually used around Jesus' own ministry. Remember, there are times when it would say, and Jesus moved with compassion did what? He didn't just, he didn't say, I'm moved with compassion. I feel for you and then do nothing. It was, he was moved with compassion and he healed the blind man. He was moved with compassion over the crowd that was with him and was getting hungry and he fed them. To be moved with compassion means that action is very shortly coming. So here at Christ Church, we're talking about this, this phrase, compassion initiatives. So it's not just about, I really feel for the plight of Afghan refugees. You have a group of people who are led to explore arranging a relationship with Dorcas, and maybe we could even adopt a family, or what could we do in more practical ways to actually engage people? And then, then everybody in the church could be involved in something like getting coats out for the winter, which might be a good thing to do like now, and it sounds like you've already done that, and you mobilized them in this very simple thing to do, but it's, it's an action on top of just a feeling. Let me uh, take a brief aside, not an aside necessarily, but, but an historical reference. When it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ and compassion, there is a Canadian journalist named Brian Stewart who traveled all over the world and was known for the one who was in the hot spot in the place of disaster or war or famine. And uh, this is a few years ago. This is actually 2005. He was speaking at a commencement service at a Christian college where you have students who are preparing to, to serve in some kind of ministry setting. 
And he began to talk about his experience meeting Christians sort of on the front lines of disaster. Listen to what he says. He says, I found, I found that there is no movement or force closer to the raw truth of war and famine and crises and the vast human predicament than organized Christianity in action. It is a vast front stretching from the most impoverished reaches of the developing world to the hectic struggle to preserve caring values in our towns and cities. Mobilizing congregations that care and being a faithful witness to truth, the primary light in the darkness and so often the only light. He, he talks about how he and a buddy, even before he himself had become a person of faith, were always shocked. They'd go in the midst of like the Congo and there would be Christians from Nebraska already there, you know, serving. And it was like, they're everywhere. They just kept running into Christians who were actively mobilizing to meet an urgent need. He says, Christians on the front lines infect those around them. C.S. Lewis called Christians the good infection. That's appropriate for these days. We should be the good infection. Even those who are not Christians, infecting with a sense of Christ's deep mystery and power. I've felt it. It changes the world still. Now, having read that and being in this cultural moment, I wrote down these words. Our culture today needs a new example of Christianity in action. I doubt there has ever been a time in American history when the credibility of the church has sunk so low so fast to the point not of being argued against in the public square, but deemed irrelevant and even unchristlike. Desperately in need, we are of another renewal. The whole history, as you know, the whole history of the church is one renewal movement after another. Why? Because we need it. We need to constantly be renewed. We're constantly going on life support. We need revival. And you know what often in the history of this year, if you studied a history of revival movements in the world, it was, it was always coupled with waves of compassionate action. Not just the preaching of the gospel and the spiritual message of truth, which is vitally central and important, but also accompanied by, by the miracles of God's people engaged in embodying his love. Let's not lose that. That's why compassionate Christian community is not, is not a weak idea. It's a strong idea. It's at the heartbeat of how God actually gets people's attention. When people are alienated and disenchanted as they are today, lonely and addicted to pain suppressants of all kinds and heading deeper in despair and malaise, they need a real person to introduce them tangibly to the person who can heal and deliver and bring hope. To experience something that resonates with their heart. People ask me sometimes, you teach in the university, do you ever have students, you know, debate you and want to question the validity of Scripture or, or who Jesus is? I says, no. Students have no more reference point. It's irrelevant. They don't know enough to ask a decent, intelligent question. That's not where people are. 
It's being a Christian in this day and age, especially, is not about correcting people. It's connecting with people. They need to see it. They need to feel it. They need to experience the embodied love and hope of Jesus Christ. And that will help connect the dots. In my, um, it's so interesting. Just one more brief aside. I had an opportunity this semester to, to teach a course. It was sort of last minute kind of thing. The teacher had a medical emergency or something. And someone mentioned my name and I was asked to teach a seminar course for senior nursing students who had been minoring in thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. And there's one course in the curriculum, which I'd always said I'd love to teach this. It's called The Spirituality of Loss and Death. The Spirituality of Loss and Death. So here's 10 of these students, or nursing students. One of the things that they would all say is that we need help understanding the idea of spiritual care because we're not getting it in our nursing program. We talk a lot about treating the whole person, but we're not getting any help in what that means. Matter of fact, we need help dealing with our own spiritual life because here's, here was the amazing thing. I expected maybe half at least of these students who chose to take a class on the spirituality of, I thought, oh, I bet they're actively involved Christians or maybe people of faith, even of other traditions. It's like, guess what? Zero. Not one of the students in that class had any current connection with a faith community. Had no uh, active movement towards studying or learning or following Jesus or anyone else. And yet, that didn't mean that they didn't have spiritual hunger. It didn't mean that they weren't vitally tuned in. So here's what happened in this class. One of the things we talk about, apart from telling them story after story of what happened today at the hospital, and they're learning a lot about what a chaplain does, but I said, you know, in a, in a hospital setting, in a healthcare setting, I might be called a spiritual care specialist, but every single one of the staff who are serving people in a hospital are spiritual care generalists. What do I mean by that? In other words... You don't go into a, you have to go into a room and decide, am I going to see this person as a real person and not dehumanize them because of their, their condition or their past or what somebody else said about them or how difficult they are? Am I going to go in and give my full attention even though I'm tired? That is part of spiritual care. That's the foundation. And people matter and they are sacred human beings in the image of God, which is a Religious language, but people get that. Something else was very surprising in a good way. One of the things we studied was this idea of, uh, it's, a, it's a modern, it's a new term. It's just started being used in the last couple of years, and maybe some of you have heard about it. It's an umbrella term called the deaths of despair. The deaths of despair. You can Google it and find article after article of people engaged in understanding more of what's going on. The deaths of despair are bringing together three categories of, of malaise, of disease, of death, producing maladies. The three are this. One is suicidality. Suicide. 
The second leading cause of death among millennials? Another is, is um, cirrhosis of the liver induced death because of alcohol use disorder? I had three, there were three people that I was seeing in the hospital two weeks ago in their 50s actively dying of cirrhosis from alcohol, okay? That's epidemic as well. And then, of course, you have the opioid epidemic and all of those things, okay? So, and these have been lumped together and called the deaths of despair. Why? And as they studied this, five students did their research papers on it. One went toward suicide, one went toward opioids, one was in mental health. And they all came out of this saying, we've got to talk about the spiritual side of this. This is, these are things, of course, there's physical addictions, etc. but there's also issues of meaning and loss of purpose, of do I even matter? Those are spiritual issues. If we're not touching that, we're not helping those people. But also, on a positive sense, this is like a bridge for many people to realizing that there's more to life than just what they see with their senses. There's more to life than just dying physically. And one, one student, I'll end with this. One student actually said this. She said, I've worked in, in different fields, you know, practicing different things. And she said, uh, you know, in the community, we talk about health promotion. You've heard that term? It's like wellness. Now let's promote healthy living instead of just treating disease, right? It's a good idea. She says, we need spiritual health promotion. She's not a Christian. But I asked her permission to use her paper. I said, that's a, that's a brilliant concept. I'm going to have to think about that one. But you get the point. Um, before I close, back, back to the burning bush for one minute. When you think of the burning bush incident in Exodus 3, that was like a one-time event, Right? There's not, you know, you don't every day, every year see a new Moses, a new burning bush. I mean, that, that's, that was like a big deal, right? Whenever angels are appearing, miracles like that, it usually means that God's doing a new revelation of himself. So whether it's Jesus or the Ten Commandments and things like that, right? Does that mean that there are no more burning bushes? So the famous poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in the middle of a long poem, has these three incredible lines. She said, earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush, a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Let me read that again. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush, a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. <laughs> I love that. Because she's tapping into the fact that the whole world is charged with the grandeur of God. That God is constantly speaking and showing himself. But the question is, will I turn aside to see? I will not take my shoes off and realize this is a sacred moment. This is an encounter with the living God unless I am alert to seeing who he is, what he's doing, and listening to his voice. Does that make sense? Are you, are you with me on that? I mean, this, the, 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 you can see why this idea of turning aside is a starting point for so many things. So let me challenge you. 
to do something very, very practical, some practical homework. Uh, and I'm actually saying, join me in this. Um, because I do this almost every day. Uh, and God reminds me constantly of this. Okay? So let's call this a spiritual practice. Something that can become a pattern in your life. Because if it's one thing we all have in common, we are all engaging with people. Okay? Every day you go out of your house. It may be with your family. You may be a teacher with students and colleagues. You may be in a business where you uh, have a team of people you're working with. You could be retired and involved in, in a book club or a, a social activity. You could be in the church context. You could have people who come to you for advice, and you, you know you're going to have to have a hard conversation today. Do you just go into the conversation, or do you stop and ask some questions of God? Like, God, I really believe that you're going ahead of me. I really believe that you already know what you might want to do that I, I'm not expecting. God, I want to be available to you, like Moses and Mary, to say, here I am. I actually want to anticipate what you want to do. So on Friday, Friday was, uh, you know, the, snow, the snowstorm that petered out. And, uh, and I'm walking toward the cancer center. So we, in, the, in South Carolina, we have a cancer center where uh, people come for infusion treatments. It could be for cancer. It could be for other maladies that require uh, infusions, blood transfusions, etc. And I, I've started doing that when I have extra blocks of time and just going around and sitting down and talking. Hi, I'm, I'm the chaplain. I'm just making some rounds. I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to meet you. Do you have a minute? I sit down. Tell me your story. And we talk. And it's wonderful because it's quieter than it is on the floors. It's, and I sometimes, so I spent 45 minutes with this man. It turns out Turns out he, we have five friends in common. He knows Don Zile from here at Christ Church. He was taught in the philosophy department long ago. And, and he started sharing his story, both of his faith story as well as a very serious illness that he has that has no uh, curable options at this point. And, and so we got into an incredible conversation. And again, walking down the hall, I simply went through some of those, those prayers. Lord, I want to be available. Help me to be alert to who to talk to, to how to respond to them, to, you know, make this what you want it to be. But let me emphasize, you do not have to be some kind of, quote, professional Christian to have your spiritual antennas up for everyone you meet. This should be something that I think can, can revolutionize our own lives so that we, when you go and we have a tough conversation, we say, Lord, I... I don't want to just do this in my own strength. I don't want to prejudge how this is going to go. I don't want to marginalize this person in my mind before I've even met them. Are you with me? What, those kinds of questions can help us as we think of being available to God. Will I expect Jesus to be who he says he is? Living, rising from the dead, that he's present everywhere, <clears throat> by his spirit, that God is constantly speaking and everywhere present. Do I really believe that? If I do, then the question, the big question is, will I turn aside to see, to attend well to the neighbors in need to whom I can go? 
They say it takes 30 or 60 days to build a habit. <laughs> Let me just encourage you in the encounters you have with people in the next week. Just go through some of those questions and, and remind yourself to have that spiritual antenna up and to turn aside in order to see what God's doing. Let's pray.